So to set this up, these the this book. Um, okay, so so I'll I'll tell you a little bit of the sort of personal background on this book is that um, I moved to California in 2016 and. I cried every day for six months. Um, and this novel just came pouring out of me because I it was kind of my first time that I had ever really dealt with grief and the grief was really intense. Um, so I started this novel that's really kind of asking the question, how do we deal with grief, you know? And then what I lay over that was um, a little bit of political what I'm very much politically concerned with. Um, so this woman, Ruth, has actually changed her identity after a terrible tragedy and moved across the country. Um, so this is about them in 1991. They were sitting upstairs in Clarice's room listening to The Cure, Ruth on Clarice's bed and Clarice at her desk near her window. And Clarice giggled, folding her UCLA acceptance letter over four times so that she needed only two moves to rip it into 32 tiny pieces, which she tossed out the window behind her. How many times a year can two people on one salary fly from California to Kentucky? I'll tell you how many. One. That'll seem perfectly sufficient to my parents. So you and I are going to spend Christmas alone in the snow, baby. They got a bourbon trail. We'll buy us some of those triple-down coats and go skiing. Ruth had thought nothing, then, of Clarissa's registering for History 203 that spring semester, even though it was so far afield of Clarissa's biochem major. Though African-American history through the Harlem Renaissance counted for Ruth as a course within her major, almost every other black undergraduate on campus was, would run through it at some point for Arts and Humanities credit. She and Clarice sat in the large second floor lecture hall every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 o'clock, their Jordache jeans strategically ripped at the knee and their spiral notebooks adorned with public enemy and steel pulse stickers. They re-scrunched the spray of their curls with the palms of their hands, hoping to look like the black queens whose history they were studying. If not Hatshepsut and Nefertiti, then at least a pair of flappers on black vaudeville. In the ladies' room after the midterm exam, with the scent of jasmine coming through the window, Clarice had propped open in disgust. Clarice kissed Ruth for the first time, full on the lips, pressing against her so hard, Ruth had to step one foot back to keep her balance. Afterwards, Ruth entered a stall and tried to urinate politely and quietly into the toilet. <laughs> but knowing Clarice was standing there, listening and appraising, Ruth felt ridiculous enough that she only halfway emptied her bladder. She didn't wipe even, because she didn't want the noise of her struggling with the oversized metal tissue roller, though she regretted it immediately. <laughs> of course, Clarice would have noted the omission of this step. Of course, Clarice had heard her zipping her pants <laughs> and deduced terrible things. <laughs> and, <laughs> and two, Ruth, see, you guys missed the reading where it was about a real man, right? <laughs> And she rethought of the thicket of black students standing just on the other side of the wall. Her and Clarice's entire social universe congregated after class like a Baptist church meeting. Ruth just wanted to hurry home. She flushed, but when she exited the stall, Clarice was standing right there, inches in front of her. She pressed her lips against Ruth before Ruth could even get to the sink to wash her hands. 
Still, the shock was physical rather than emotional. They'd grown up together, after all, and though the boys had liked Clarice, it had always seemed to Ruth that Clarice didn't quite like the boys. Where other girls bantered about the, the butt on this football player or that one, and constructed in the air the long, elaborate flowchart of who would go to the homecoming dance with him, Clarice kept indifferent silence. Where other girls planned months in advance the series of passive-aggressive and aggressive-aggressive steps they'd take to secure a prom date, Clarice waited until the week before and asked her third cousin once removed. When he said no, she queried no further. I must sit over there with Josh tomorrow, said their friend Lisa during fourth period lunch. If he asks me to sit there again the next day, I'll know it's time, she explained, as if she were a pharmacist doing prescription counseling. <laughs> then I'll reach over in her room and stick my phone number in his chemistry book. You know it's not a graduation requirement to lasso and spear a prom date, said Clarice. Lisa looked at Clarice with disgust. She'd had a new round of connectors put on her braces and saliva collected in the corners of her mouth as she asked, Why all the acid? Who even are you anymore? You better get your own date together, that's all. But Clarice had wrecked Lisa, and Ruth was embarrassed enough for her that she didn't speak. She concentrated on sewing apart her pizza, with left, which left a pentagon-shaped outline of grease every time it moved across her school issue tray. <coughs> So there, in the University of Kentucky's pink-tiled ladies' room, Ruth finally realized the chase had never interested Clarice because Clarice hadn't had a taste for the prey. <laughs> there Ruth wondered if Clarice wasn't kissing her in the way of a simple, hungry person, a person always looking for the kinds of adventures other people never had. Clarice herself was fond of saying she wanted to ride life to death. The kiss might have been kissed for its own novelty. Clarice might, after all these years, have simply wanted to witness a certain look on Ruth's face. Ruth acknowledged her own shock, but determined to shake it off because she felt, as they climbed the stairs to the first floor, that she wasn't supposed to think anything of Clarice's advances, not even five minutes after they happened. She allowed herself surprise a bit later, on the May morning after she'd taken her last final and turned in her last paper. She'd boxed up her one bedroom full of things, and Clarice had come to the echoing empty apartment to help her load the U-Haul. Clarice helped her shove the 15 boxes of her things against the west wall of her bedroom, and then they lay together across the permanent groove Ruth's futon had pressed into the cheap carpet. Clarice spooned Ruth and Ruth led her. Clarice put a clammy, tentative hand on Ruth's breast, and Ruth turned slightly so she could lean further into it. Clarice kissed Ruth's shoulder, adding ever more insistence, until finally she took the hand that Ruth hadn't rolled over on and forced it up through the underwear of Ruth's bra. Ruth turned all the way into Clarice, locking her into a tongue-choked kiss, and Clarice tried in the coffiny space of Ruth's bra to handle things. <laughs> Set the girls free, Ruth whispered. <laughs> and Clarice stopped, her kiss going slack as she concentrated on unhooking Ruth's bra. Ruth marveled at the paradox. Men always thought a bra should somehow snap instantly open for them, so it, it took them forever. Women knew there were three hooks, and the only way around them was through them. 
<laughs> Out of fear, Ruth let Clarice do all the work. Ruth hadn't wanted to expose her lack of same-sex experience. So Clarice it was who wound her tongue across Ruth. Clarice it was <clears throat> who did some other things. Um, <laughs> uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> and then into a place that lighted a moment Ruth liked more than anything that had ever sexually happened to her. She had an inner flutter as of a disdainful bat that she might be gay, that she'd have to come out of a closet whose existence was just now presenting itself to her, that she'd have to cut her hair and tell all her friends and forget about working in corporate America. <laughs> Clarice moved down to kissing her knees and Ruth edged her hips forward as a hint to maneuver herself back. Clarice did and then Ruth was bursting inside as a jelly bin did when he finally bit down on it. The such did y'all bring cigarettes? <laughs> the summer wore on in this way of a morning sex routine that neither Clarice nor Ruth ever once alluded to out loud. A routine they choreographed while it was still relatively dark out and the birds still screamed at the sun. There came days when Ruth thought she might function better with 30 more minutes of sleep, but in the silence between the final cricket chirp and the first bird call, she always woke, her heart racing. Every single morning that summer, she and Clarice opened the day by dipping into each other. The morning Clarice had to take a day trip to Louisville for a job training, she woke Ruth at 5.30 with a gentle hand along her thigh. They watched each other's eyes across tea candles at Sunny's, Ruth marveling that she'd found, wedged deep within kinship, love. It seemed like the perfect ending to the part of their history that had been soaked in tragedy, and the beauty of it was that they could maintain their silence so easily. They had been and still were friends, after all, and no one thought anything of two women going out for a beer. Straight women held hands all the time while walking down the street. Straight women helped with each other's hair in the restroom at the club. Straight women shimmied down each other's thighs and danced together at house parties, the world thought, as a sexy joke, because they were actually aiming at the fantasies of straight men. Ruth thought she and Clarice could go on fooling the world forever, move in together after college, buy a RAV4, adopt a baby from Guatemala. <laughs> then came the second shock when Ruth knew none of that would happen. The first time she came at the same time as Clarice, but felt less like a jelly bean and more like a lollipop someone had dropped and left stuck to the street. She found herself in bed, mopping sweat from her cheek with the back of her hand, looking not to the future or even to the present, but to the bloody, screaming past. The shift launched her into a crying jag, and Clarice circled an arm firmly around her waist, pulling her close. You okay, she asked. Ruth felt Clarice's face, so close to her own. When she turned to look, she found the smug satisfaction that would end the whole thing. A satisfaction she remembered, for in the small, sexy way Clarice's upper lip curled, Ruth saw the same inappropriate affect Clarice had worn on her face the day Ruth's father was killed. Clarice had shown up with her parents at the police station and taken temporary custody of Ruth. Since your dad's in the hospital, Clarice said, we get to have a slumber party. Ruth tried a feeble smile. It had been six hours since the police officer had shot her father four times, and the short pop, 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 nimble as the treble clef of a sonata, was on instant replay in her mind. 
She'd been lying outside in the grass watching the sky for low-altitude flights from San Francisco, and when she heard the report of the gun, she flopped wildly over to her stomach, thinking the shots were coming from across the privacy, privacy fence from Mrs. Cortapassi's cactus garden. The moment in which she hesitated, the moment it took her to figure out the shots were coming from somewhere within her very own house, was the moment that would never let her alone. Should she cower out of sight, she wondered. Should she save herself? And then she thought her father, her father, her one living parent, and then the next second she was running, screaming, Dad, 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 because she already knew. And for a long time, she'd think she knew because she held her father just that closely in her consciousness. But years later, in college, she'd take psychology for her and learned about distant distant sensory perception, and she'd wonder if she'd heard on the wind a disturbance of sound wave as Bob Bradley scaled the fence to get to her bedroom, and her father argued with him, and a neighbor saw this entire sequence of events and called the police. Had she smelled on the air the fine microscopic particles of gunpowder as the sheriff took his high-range rifle, got out of his cop car, and aimed at the darker man's chest? By the time she ran through the back door, through the kitchen, through the living room, and out the front door, her father was stooped in the driveway. He wore his favorite shirt, the white one with intersecting purple, green, and gray stripes, the shirt she liked to think of as graphing paper, and she could see the circle of blood breaking more and more of the 90-degree angles the stripes made, spreading across his shoulder like the sample stain in a whisk commercial. From behind him, she could see the policeman still pointing his gun at her father. She could see Bob standing with his hands straight up in the air, his hazel eyes turned almost gray in the sunshine, tears easing out of them. From behind, she saw her father's arm bent at the elbow where he was clutching some part of his own anterior, and she saw the defeated sag in the legs of the brown pants he'd worn the day he spoke to her sixth grade class about accounting as a career and the day he told her and Wendy to go outside and rake the leaves in the front yard or else, and the day he picked Russell up from his 16th and last day at Riley Children's Hospital. She saw her father fall over. She heard his head smack against the black top of the driveway he'd just resealed with Henry's. She saw the blood fly out of his mouth, little droplets of her father's heart turned to beads of airborne liquid. Time slowed then in a way she'd always be ashamed of, and it wasn't until she heard the crackling voice on the cop's car radio that she screamed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat>